Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Clint. I lead pastor, one of the elders of this church. If you're a visitor, especially if it's your first time with us, I want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. Glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. If you're a Christian uh, who happens to be in town or maybe visiting or looking for a new church, maybe you just moved here looking for a new church, or even if you're not a Christian and maybe you're exploring the gospel of Christ and Christianity uh, and kind of trying to figure out what you believe uh, about God and about Christianity, whoever you are, however you got here, just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a safe and good place for you to, to be, uh, to, to know Christ, and, and even as our sister just prayed, uh, to meet with him, to hear from from him even in his word. Uh, this week, uh, you know, there are those moments in the Christian life where uh, something happens and you realize, like, I'm just not as mature in the faith as I thought I was or wished to be. Uh, and you, you know, maybe it's an outside circumstance, something you can't control. Um, you know, maybe it's you're around someone that's obviously evidently more mature than you uh, in the faith, but something happens and you realize, man, I'm just not as mature as I wish I was. I had one of those moments on Monday night. We were gathered around a table with pastors from all over uh, the country and indeed all over the world. So a pastor from Scotland, a pastor from Russia, uh, and then some pastors from all over the country. And, and we were hearing from our brother pastor from Russia. And obviously it's an interesting time to be a Christian pastor in Russia. Evgeny was talking with us and, and sharing kind of a story of kind of his situation as a pastor, as a shepherd, caring for the sheep uh, in the circumstances that he finds himself in. As he, as he recounted some of his stories, even as we just sang uh, The Cloud, thinking about his faithfulness uh, moved me even as we were singing the song because I just realized, man, I don't even have a clue what it's like to be a pastor in your shoes right now. He told us how that morning uh, one of the men in his church had been drafted into the war. How that every male in Russia now, uh, because of mobilization, can be drafted. And even that when he came to the States to be with us at this pastor's conference, he didn't pack his bags because he assumed that he very well may, at, uh, in trying to travel, they would assume he's trying to escape and enlist him, even in the conflict. And so he sat there sharing stories. He told us in, in the middle of this mobilization and now people, uh, kind of the draft being open to all men, uh, he told us how he had to have conversations with his church and talk to them that it's not sinful to flee the country if that's what you choose to do. If you get drafted into the army, like seek even the, the brother who was drafted that morning, he said, man, ask your commanding officer, perhaps you could be a chaplain so you don't have to engage in the actual conflict as they obviously don't support even what's going on. And, and so the complexity of what does it look like to be a faithful citizen in this moment. Then he gathered together in a Zoom meeting, the women from his church. He said there's about 40 women on this Zoom call. Just to check in on them, ask them how they're doing. He said most of the women on the call were weeping because their husbands had fled to other countries or been drafted. And so now suddenly find themselves without husbands, without fathers for their families. And in the middle of this, he's trying to figure out with the other elders, how do we shepherd and care for this church? How do we shepherd and pastor and help them think about these moments? And he said to his church, he, he let them know, it's not sinful for you to flee. But for those who are staying, I want you to know, I will stay with you. I will suffer with you. I will be arrested with you. I will die with you. I am your pastor. I will not leave you. And as he sat there with tears in his eyes, and I listened to him thinking, and I was I'm like, what would give a man that kind of boldness to look and shepherd and care for his flock such that he would say without arrogance, without pride, I will stay with you, and if necessary, I would die with you? What would cause one to say that? Well, simply a huge and accurate and beautiful view of the Lord Jesus. Beholding the glory of Christ, the chief shepherd, 
who would say, I will love and serve and sacrifice for my bride, the church. And gazing upon his beauty then makes you become like that which you gaze upon. And this is a true reality in all of humanity, in all of human experience. You become like that which you behold. You will become like that which you behold. My sons play football in the living room. I don't know why they don't go out in the yard. They play in the living room. (laughs) And when they do, just like I did when I was a kid, football cards laid out just beside the game. Football on TV. And they're imitating the players on those cards. They're, They're beholding, these are the best players. These are the ones I want to be like, and I want to become like those players. You become like that which you behold. This is an undeniable truth. Or to say it another way, there's a connection between our aspiration and our admiration. That that which you most admire is that which you aspire to be like. And this pastor, Evgeny, was one who beheld Christ, was beholding Christ and becoming like him, one who admired Christ and was aspiring to be like Christ. That's how a man would say to his church with humility and authenticity, I will stay with you, I will die with you. Because he's a man who's fixed his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. Pastor Evgeny most admires the Lord Jesus. By the grace and power of the Holy Spirit is modeling and demonstrating that he is indeed being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of the very Lord whom he admires. Paul, Paul explicitly teaches that we become like Jesus when we behold him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, literally the same word that's in our text today, transfigured, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who's a spirit. In our text today, we get to journey up the mountain with the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And we get to journey up the mountain and behold the beauty of King Jesus in this event commonly referred to as the transfiguration. And in this text, we'll see the supremacy of Jesus revealed in his majestic glory as the beloved son and the suffering savior. And I know that's a lot of lofty language, but there's no language that's too lofty to describe what we're gonna study today. Peter, in his second epistle, describing this moment, captures it like this. 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So this morning, the main point we're going to see is if you want to be transformed, you must behold Jesus' divine glory and follow him on his gospel mission. If you want to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, you must behold Jesus' divine glory and follow him on his gospel mission. Let's pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would help us as we seek to do that. Father, we come to you through Christ Jesus, the glorious one the one far more glorious than our puny minds can comprehend. But you've sent your spirit, you and the Father, the Father and the Son, you've sent the spirit to dwell within your people and to guide us to the truth, your word is truth, and to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So would you expand our view of the Lord Jesus? Help us behold. Help us see clearly Christ our Lord. And in seeing him, help us become like him by your spirit. Transform us, even as our sister prayed. And send us out of here on your mission, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two simple exhortations for you today. 
Behold Jesus and follow Jesus. Very simple. Behold Jesus and follow Jesus. First, behold Jesus in his divine glory. Look again, chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. You got to love Peter. It is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So let's set the scene. Uh, and it's been a few weeks now. Uh, Pastor Phil was here last week. Pastor Hez preached the week before. So it's been a few weeks now since we've been in Matthew. But let me remind you of what happened in chapter 16, verse 21 to 28. The Lord Jesus, for the first time, told his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer uh, at the hands of the scribes uh, and Pharisees, and that he would have to suffer and die. And do you remember what Peter's response to hearing Jesus? Like, Peter had just confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, this is right. And on you, I'll build my church. And then Jesus says, oh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter's like, nope, no, you're not. <laughs> like, and he rebukes him. So he just went from saying you're the Christ to Christ, that's a bad plan. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That any kind of effort to prevent Jesus from going to the cross is a satanic effort. He says, you're trying to lead me, not trying to follow, uh, uh, to follow me. Get behind me. Satan tries to lead Jesus. Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. So he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan, and follow me. And then what did he say to the disciples? He said, you too, if you want to be my follower, you've got to take up your own cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That the way of the kingdom often advances through the suffering of God's people. It's counterintuitive. It's not how we would think that a king is going to come set up shop, especially the Jews in first century uh, world are thinking, no, we want geopolitical rule. We want uh, Yahweh to send forth this Messiah, this Christ, to take back the, the power and get us out from underneath Rome. We want immediate king reigning and ruling. We want privilege and authority and power. And Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. And those who want to follow me must pick up their own crosses and be willing to suffer. So counterintuitive. Surely they left that moment a bit deflated and perhaps a little sad and confused. And brothers and sisters, is it not sometimes the case with us even today following Jesus? Sometimes we're a little sad and confused. Like, Lord, I don't always understand your ways. I know your word tells me your ways are not my ways. But sometimes I think the plans that you're unveiling and, and revealing, I just wouldn't do it this way. And sometimes I'm a little sad and confused. But Jesus knows this, and he's a good shepherd. And even with these disciples, he's now going to take them to this mountaintop experience of his glory in such a way that it would become fuel for them, that as they go up the mountain, they're going to have this beholding of his glory that's going to be fuel to them to go back down the mountain into suffering and sacrifice for mission. He's going to give them this glory, this mountaintop experience to send them forth on faithfulness. Similarly with us, our good shepherd knows that we need spiritual highs on the mountaintop even to keep us faithful in the narrow road to glory. And so we come to chapter 17. And after six days, now if you go over to Luke's account, you might see that it's after eight days. You might get confused and say, uh-oh, we, we got a problem here. It's not a problem. So Luke uses a Greek uh, phrase and word that's uh, kind of similar to the way we would say, hey, in about a week. 
So about a week, eight days, six days here. The point either way is it's, it's, it's recently connected to the events of what he had just said uh, in, in calling his disciples to deny themselves and to follow him. It also could just be that he's counting the first and last day, whereas Matthew is not. Either way, not a contradiction, not a problem. But after six days, Jesus goes up on a high mountain with the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he's transfigured or transformed before them. He pulls back the veil on his eternal majestic glory. Even in the humiliation of his incarnation, he said, no, no, no. Like, I'm currently, Philippians 2, 6, and 7, in my humiliated state as I've become a man. I've wrapped myself in this way in human flesh. I'm living among people. I'm going to die. But let me just pull back the veil of it. Let you know, no, 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 listen. <laughs> I'm not merely man. I'm truly God and truly man. I'm truly God. Let me show you just a little bit that I'm truly God. You might need some encouragement for where we're headed. Let me show you who I really am. He demonstrates to them, that the, as the writer of Hebrews captures in Hebrews 1.3, that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is indeed, as Peter had confessed in chapter 16, verse 16, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Moses and Elijah appear and talk with him. And Peter does what Peter does. Open mouth and insert foot. <laughs> this is what he does. So think about this. They're up on the mountain having this amazing moment of worship and prayer, seeing Jesus in his eternal, majestic glory. And then Peter, I just picture him. This is probably more me, so this is not biblical. This is just il illustration. <laughs> but I think this is like, yo, do y'all, John, you see this? Like, Jesus, look, 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 okay. Like, this is good. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, like, you know, can I build a tent? Feast of Tabernacles, maybe we do something like that. I can get you an Airbnb. Let's do something. Let's hang out for a little bit. <laughs> like, let's, let's get together and let's stay here for a little bit. And so Peter in this moment so excited that he, he kind of interrupts and he says, hey, I see this conversation going on and I want to I I hang out here for a little bit. And then the voice of God interrupts him. <laughs> so my man has just been rebuked by Jesus earlier and now God the Father is like, I need to have a word with you as well. <laughs> so again, poor Peter often... Often messing up, getting too excited, which again, I can relate. Praise God for Peter. He keeps me encouraged. But the disciples then at this moment fall on their face in fear. Jesus touches them, tells them not to be afraid. They rise and see Jesus alone. Now, there are so many incredible truths in these eight verses that I could preach at least four sermons and not scratch the surface. But I do want to be helpful to you this morning, and I don't want to preach four sermons to you today, for we'd be here into mid-afternoon. So what I want to do is I just want to, I want to focus in on, I want to behold four aspects of Jesus' divine glory. So my challenge to you is, again, behold his divine glory. I just want to give you four aspects. And I pray that not just for intellectual knowledge, but that your heart might burn white hot with worship. That you might see him and behold him and fall more in love with him and come into uh, interaction and intimacy with him, even by his spirit through his word now. Four aspects. Number one, behold God's powerful presence with him. Behold God's powerful presence with him. And I've got a number of subpoints under that. So we're like subpointed down uh, for a while. So don't worry about the outline. Just listen in and worship. So first, behold God's powerful presence with him as revealed in this glowing glory. So again, this word transfigured in Greek is the word that we get the, our word uh, metamorphosis from. He became changed in outward appearance or expression of uh, manifesting a change in nature or essence. Something about this moment was supernatural and powerful. He unveils his glory such that, that Matthew tells us his face was shining like the sun and his glows were translucent, burning white. 
There was a glory that they can barely lay their eyes upon. And what does this make us think of? Come on, we were studying Exodus in the beginning of the year. Do we not know in Exodus, Moses went up the mountain to get the law from God directly? We haven't gotten there in our study yet. We'll be going there in January, Lord willing. But that Moses went up the mountain to get the law from God, to meet with God, and his interaction and intimacy with God's presence was such that when he came back down, his face was glowing so much they had to veil it. That he'd been in the presence of God and was reflecting the Shekinah glory of God in such a way that they had to cover him up. Jesus reveals that his glow, unlike Moses, is not a fading glow. So eventually Moses' glow went away and he could, he could kick it and he didn't have to wear the veil anymore. Jesus' glow is not the case. It's veiled in his incarnation, but it's a glow that doesn't go away. Jesus' glory is a permanent, eternal glory from being eternally one with God. He's not merely a man who's been in God's presence, but he's the one who is God's presence, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the second person of the triune Godhead. And this glory that he unveils in part uh, to the disciples on the mountain is a glory that John talked about in his prologue. You remember John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's the glory Jesus prayed about in the high priestly prayer. When he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is not a new glory. <laughs> this is a glory he's had since before the creation of the world. He's eternal. This glory, this, this shining from him is from him and resonates from him as his eternal glory. It's the glory John speaks of in Revelation 1.16 with similar description. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. He'll say later in Revelation that in the new heavens and new earth we don't even need a sun because Christ is the glorious one. So we see his glory. We're beholding God's unique presence with him in this glowing glory, but also notice this God's presence with him as revealed in Moses and Elijah's presence. Now, Moses and Elijah are being present in this interaction reveals a few things. I mean, one, and we don't have time to go here. This could be one of those other sermons if I could preach a whole bunch of sermons on this. But one, what we know about Moses and Elijah being there is death is a period, not a, or is, is not a period, but a comma. <laughs> like the people of God... Live forever. Life is eternal. And you'll live forever in the pleasure of God or under the wrath of God, one or the other. So death is not a period. It's a comma unto glory. And we see that now with Moses and Elijah showing up, that Christ is sovereign, that he's the sovereign God who says, hey, I need to snatch them from centuries back. They need to be in this interaction. And they're dwelling and doing well. But again, I can't do much with that right now. Also, their presence means that, that all the scriptures have been fulfilled for Christ's coming. So them showing up is revealing, not only is he sovereign over death, but everything that the scriptures have promised would be fulfilled before Messiah comes has happened, therefore Messiah is here. But also Moses and Elijah represent the law and prophets. In other words, Moses and Elijah represent God's presence through God's word to his people. So the fact that Moses and Elijah with Jesus in this moment reveals that God is visiting his people and has a word for them, that his presence is there. Also, God's presence in Christ is revealed through the cloud's presence. The cloud shows up. We've seen this cloud in our study in Exodus. This is, the, this is symbol, uh, symbolic of the covenant presence of God. Yahweh, with his people, said, I will take care of you. I will deliver you. I will protect you from Egypt. I'll set you free. I will deliver you through the Red Sea. I'm going to guard you with this uh, pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. 
So again, when we see in Jesus, we're beholding his divine glory. We're beholding the fact that God's presence is uniquely with him. We see that in this glory that's shining. We see that in Moses and Elijah's presence. We see that in the presence of the cloud. And here, it envelops them like even it does in the mountain of Israel. And lastly, we see God's presence as revealed in God's voice. If all that's not enough to convince the disciples that God's presence was uniquely with Jesus, then surely the audible voice of God the Father does. He speaks from the cloud. And what does he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you hear this relationship? Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, just as Peter has confessed. Do we not see the divine glory of Christ through God's presence with him? Is this not consistent with everything else that we've seen in Matthew? That Jesus has an authority that demonstrates he's got the authority of God. That when he speaks to his disciples, they must obey. When he speaks to demons, they must obey. When he speaks to disease, it must obey. When he speaks to death, death must let loose. Have we not seen over and over again, earth, winds, and waves, and uh, destruction, everything has to obey him because he's God. This is the very presence of God in their midst. Christian, God's presence is yours in Christ. I have good news for you today if you're in Christ. No matter how you feel today, you are uniquely in God's presence 24-7. If you are in, God's, uh, in Christ, you'll be in God's presence tomorrow and a week from now. And a decade from now, you'll still be in his presence. 27 million years from now, you'll be in the presence of God in Christ. King's Cross, the world should experience this uniquely in us. Like, we should be people that non-Christians come around and say, wait a minute, I, like, I sense something unique and supernatural among you. There's a presence with you unlike one I know and see in the world. Because in Christ, we have the very presence of God. And from the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, not just with us, but within us. So as we behold his glory, the non-Christians should notice there's something different about us, namely the living God in Christ. But that's just beholding God's presence. Number two, underneath Point number one, sub-point number two, <laughs> behold God's particular pleasure in him. So not just behold God's powerful presence in Christ, behold God's particular pleasure in him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the second time we've heard the God, of, God the Father in the book of Matthew. Chapter 3, verse 17, at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's a unique pleasure God the Father has in God the Son. God is a happy God. He is pleased with his son. To the parents in the room, is it not true that there's some kind of unique and indescribable joy you have in the delight of your children? Is there not something that, like, for me, it happens whether it's watching my kids at a sporting event, whether it's seeing the uh, recount a huge passage of scripture from scripture memory, whether it's their learning and growing and something's hard and difficult and they don't give up but they persevere, whether it's they run and ask for help when they need help, like whatever it is, there's something that happens, this lump that happens in my throat. <laughs> that there is this, this delight. I love my babies. And my goodness, how pleasing it is for me to see them, to live life, to be faithful in life, to learn and grow in life, to, to fail and to get back up and to continue in life. And maybe you don't have children, so you're like, wait a minute, I can't relate to that. But maybe you have a, a, a mother or a father who said to you, I'm proud of you. You know it did something to you. It did something to me every time my father said, son, I'm proud of you. Man, them shoulders went back further. <laughs> That's right, my dad's proud of me. There's something that goes on when a father delights in his child. 
And that's sinful fathers delighting in sinful children. Can you imagine the delight of a holy father in his holy son? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Our God is a happy God. You may think God is some dry, boring uh, God. You just don't know the God of the Bible. Our God is a happy God, and the chief glory of his happiness is in the son. He loves his son. Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father. Can you imagine how proud God the Father is of his son, who is the wisdom of God in the flesh? Can you imagine the Father's heart when the son walks out of the grave? Whew! Like if my sinful fallen heart can delight in my sinful fallen children like that, can you imagine what God the Father feels in the son as he accomplishes redemption? Our God is a happy God. But Peter doesn't get this. This is why he's like, again, let's get the Airbnbs. And the father's like, oh, hold up, hold up, Peter. You're acting like Moses and Elijah are equal to my son. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. He's in a category of his own. No, no, no. This is why God the Father interrupts. I will have none of this like equals among my son. This is my son you're talking about. They're here to point to him. They're not here to compete with him. And so God the Father says, no, this is my beloved son, the one in whom I am well pleased. Moses and Elijah were bold, faithful servants of God, but Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Spurgeon says it like this, it was a statement of demonstration and distinction by which the Father marked Jesus out from all others as his own nearest and dearest one. Moses and Elijah were his servants, only Jesus was his son. Brother or sister, understand this is a game changer when you understand the sweet doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ means that when you place your faith in Christ, you're united to him. That when he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. You're hidden in Christ. You're in Christ. As you read through the New Testament, as you read and study the Bible, I just want you to start paying attention to the phrase, in Christ. Notice how Paul can't say anything without saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Why is that such a big deal? Again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Why is this a game changer? Because understanding God is happy with his beloved son. And then you understanding I'm in his son means God is happy with me in Christ. Faith in Christ unites you to the Christ whom God takes pleasure in. So think about this. Again, the beloved son, the father's love for the beloved son, and then Colossians 1.13, gospel. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of what? His beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brother, sister in Christ, no matter what you did last night or last week or 10 years from now, if you are truly in Christ, God is pleased with you. He delights in you. And this good news ought to then give you the fuel and passion to say, therefore, I want to pursue holiness. Not run away from it. Not find out he's still happy with me so I can keep doing whatever I want. No, he's happy with me even though I've done those things. I want to know this God. I want to behold this Christ. I want to know this love even more. Non-Christian friend, do you sense God's displeasure with you because of your sin? Well, then look to Christ, 
who died not only to save you from the penalty of your sin, but to make you pleasing to God. He wants to delight in you, and he sent his son so that he might delight in you and keep his justice intact. Behold God's presence with him, and behold God's pleasure in him. Thirdly, behold God's clear command about him. So again, we're still just beholding Jesus right now. His presence with him, his particular pleasure in him. Now, behold God's clear command about him. So notice he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Here's the clear command in this text. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Now this intimate experience with the voice of God leads the disciples to great fear. They fall down on their faces. But the father says, listen to him. This is an amazing statement with Moses and Elijah present. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Elijah is one of the great prophets that spoke on behalf of God. And yet God the father says, listen to my son. Like, you've built your whole life understanding, and again, we're going to talk about this as a good thing. You've built your whole life listening to Moses, listening to the prophets, listening to the law, listening to the wisdom, listening to the prophets. Listen to my son, because all of them were pointing to him. He's demonstrating. He's showing, listen to Jesus. Their authority doesn't hold a candle to his authority. Matter of fact, their authority is only given to them because they're pointing to him as the authority. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The prophet Daniel, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Interesting. And the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels burning with fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand, thousand served him and 10,000 10, stood before him in the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The prophets pointed to this prophet. The law pointed to this law keeper, the very fulfillment of the law. And so Bishop J.C. Ryle says, Moses and Elijah were great men in their day, but Peter and his companions were to remember that in nature and dignity and office, they were far below Christ. He was the true sun. They were the stars depending daily on his light. He was the root. They were the branches. He was the master. They were the servants. Their goodness was all derived his was original and his own. Let them honor Moses and the prophets as holy men. But if they would be saved, they must take Christ alone for their master and glory only in him. Hear ye him. The law and the prophets, the father himself spoke and all of them pointed to the son. The disciples representing the New Testament are looking to the son. God's word, be they inspired or audible, always point to God's son. Jesus is the apex of redemptive history as revealed in the scriptures. The Bible is about the person and work of God in and through his son. Jesus made this clear, Luke 24, in that interaction with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, listen, no, no, it's these scriptures that bear witness and testify about me. Don't you understand, Moses, the law, the prophets are all pointing you to me. It's the, I'm fulfilling everything they've said. The Messiah must come, must suffer and die and raise on the third day. This is all what the scriptures are teaching. They're all pointing to Christ. The author of Hebrews opens up and says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. King's Cross, everything is about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to him. The Gospels and Acts uh, reveal his coming. And the rest of the New Testament interprets all that, all that happened and connects all the dots for us. Friend, you will listen to Jesus or you will ignore God. Those are your options. Listen to Jesus 
or reject God. To not listen to Christ is to reject the one true God. Behold God's powerful presence with him. Behold God's particular pleasure in him. Behold God's clear command about him. And lastly, underneath point one, don't worry, point two is short. Behold God's grace, behold God's glorious grace given in and through him alone. Behold glorious grace given in and through him alone. Notice they rise in their fear and they see Christ alone. Matthew makes this very emphatic. He wants you to know, no, no, no. When they've rightly understood the voice of God speaking to them, you look to Christ alone. You're not looking at Moses and Elijah in the way you were looking at Moses and Elijah before. You're looking to Christ and Christ alone. Moses and Elijah say, hey, don't look at us, look at Christ. And they look up and they look at Christ alone. But notice, they go from frightened in God's presence to fearless and focused on Christ. Falling on their face. Oh my goodness, God Almighty is speaking. That's a right posture to assume when God is speaking to you. But Jesus comes and he touches them. Whew. You can't remain the same when Christ touches you. And he says, get up. Yes, if not for me, you should fear the voice of God. But because of me, you have nothing to fear. Get up. <laughs> like in Christ now, he's like God delights in you. Get up. Listen. Focus on me and me alone and the Father's pleasures directed at you. You have nothing to fear. When Christ touches a sinner, he calls you to rise focused on him. One touch of God can remove terror of God. And replace it with faith and focus and trust in God. You know, usually in a broken world, the closer you get to someone, the more you start seeing their weaknesses and failures. Right? So you can go out on a first date and put your best foot forward and be pretty impressive. <laughs> 16 years into marriage, wifey knows all of my flaws. <laughs> There's no more hiding. And in a fallen world, the, the closer you get to fallen people, the more you see evidence of fall. Not so with King Jesus. The closer you get to him, the more you gaze upon him, the more you're like, there's more beauty there than I first realized. The more you see and behold him, the more you're like, oh my, he's better. He's even better. When I see God's presence with him, he's even better. When I see God's particular affection and love for him, he's even better. When I hear God telling me, listen to him, he's even better. And when I see his grace reaches out and touches dirty sinners and makes us no longer afraid of God. Because his grace goes to Calvary and dies for us and raises on the third day and reconciles us to the Father so the Father might delight in us, even with the same delight he has for the Son, I say, my goodness, he's more beautiful than I first realized. And when you get these glimpses of glory on the mountaintop, they're meant to be fuel to keep you following him when you go down the mountain and back into his mission. Second exhortation, much briefer, follow Jesus in his gospel mission. Follow Jesus in his gospel mission. So they've just come down from the mountaintop. They've had this experience. They've beheld him. Hopefully now you've been beholding him now. Now where do I go from this? We don't live on the mountaintop. Often we have to follow him down the mountain back out into mission and think about where he's going to the cross. So we've been on the mountaintop. We're still going to the cross with the disciples in this moment. Now, Jesus has to clear up some confusion with them because they're still trying to figure things out. And this is what I love about being transformed from one degree of glory to another. God doesn't just save us and leave us alone. He keeps maturing and, and showing and teaching and leading us. And often, again, there, there are moments of confusion where it's like, I don't quite understand your word. I don't quite understand what's going on right here. But I want to follow you. I'm beholding you, and I want to follow you. Help me. 
And he's pleased to help. He's a good shepherd. So look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So Jesus lets them know, hey, fellas, for now, that vision you just saw, for now, that's just for you. So he, Jesus understands, no, i got to go to the cross and die. I'm going to suffer and die. I've already told you that. I peeled back the veil and showed you some of my glory so that you're encouraged and know there's a greater glory coming. Wait till I get up from the dead and you see my glorified body. We're going to do, that's coming. But if you go telling people right now about this vision, then all they're going to say is let's set up the geopolitical reign. They're not going to get it. So this messianic secret's got to be kept for now until I raise. So he says, shh, don't tell nobody until I get up from the dead. Then talk about it all you want. But for now, they're not going to get it. we got to go to the cross. That's where I'm headed. I'm on mission. I came to seek and save the lost. I'm going to do that by living and dying a substitutionary death and raising from the, from, the, from the grave. And so you need to understand that's my mission. That's what I'm about. That's where we're headed. That's what's going on. He's come to shed his, his blood. They've been gazing on his glory. And now he's leading them into a deeper understanding of his mission. And again, friends, this is what's encouraging to grow in, your, in Christ is to grow in your understanding of his love and your love of his person and his work. You need to gaze on his beauty and you need to understand his gospel work in the world. You need to understand who he is. You need to understand what he's about and how he does his mission. And notice the transformation even in Peter and the disciples. The last time Jesus talked about his death, again, Peter rebuked him. Notice Peter doesn't rebuke him this time. Jesus is shepherding Peter. Peter's growing. He's beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. He's understanding, no, no, I remember last time when I rebuked you for saying you're going to go die, that didn't end well. So let's not do that one again. <laughs> so Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to go suffer and die. Wait till I raise from the dead before you tell people. There's no pushback, but there is some confusion. Look at verse 10. And the disciples ask him, well, then why do the scribes say first Elijah must come? So they're like, we just saw Elijah, and so we're trying to figure out in our heads, and in Micah chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, there's this prophecy, the scribes have taught this, that the Elijah must come. He's the forerunner. He's the one who will come before the coming Messiah, and he's going to come announce the kingdom, and, and so they teach that. We just saw Elijah. Like, was that, the, was that Elijah coming first? So they're confused. So again, notice following Jesus doesn't mean you've got all the answers and you figured it out. It means you're beholding him, and you're following him, and you're asking him your questions. And notice he's willing to answer. Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So Jesus answers their question. They're clear now. John the Baptist was the promised Elijah. He was the one in the wilderness declaring, make way for the king. Who's like, hey, oh, don't, don't, don't bow to me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not the one. I must decrease. He must increase. So when John the Baptist realized who Jesus was, John the Baptist said, let me fall back. I'm just Elijah. I'm just announcing the king is here. The Messiah has come. And so the disciples realized, oh, John the Baptist was Elijah. He's the one. But then also notice what Jesus says, that John the Baptist played his role in the restoration of all things, meaning he, he paved the way for the Messiah, the Redeemer, to come. But they did not recognize him. And we know from our own study that instead Herod had him beheaded at the request of Herodias. They did with him as they pleased. And Jesus says, they'll also persecute and kill me. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So again, to be a disciple of Christ is to grow and to learn and to understand more and more because Jesus is leading you. But also notice, as we put all of this together, 
What, what the disciples didn't understand, what the Jews didn't understand, even in Christ's coming and his mission particularly. So he was the Christ, but the mission he came to accomplish, when, when the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, he's combining two quotes from the Old Testament. He's combining Psalm 2-7, this king to come. But he's also quoting Isaiah 42-1, the suffering servant. And he's demonstrating that my Messiah, my king, is the suffering servant. And the reason he has come is to suffer in the place of sinners, to die and to raise, to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You only want conquering king, but you're not going to get conquering king without this suffering servant in order to restore you to right relationship with the Father. Christ has a laser-like focus on the cross. Everything he does reveals his eternal glory. And in his transfiguration, everything he does reveals, but I'm headed to the cross. Yes, I am the Son of God. See it? And I'm going to die for sinners. The mission of Christ is the cross of Christ. Therefore, to follow him is to pick up our own cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow him. So God ordinarily is going to advance his kingdom through suffering, not victory. Like victory has been won in Christ, but often the way he's going to advance his kingdom now through this life is whenever a pastor looks at his people and says, I will stay with you. I will suffer with you. I will be arrested with you. I will die with you. How does a pastor say something like that? He's been beholding Christ. He understands the mission of Christ and that the gospel of Christ must get to the ends of the earth. In conclusion, if we want to be transformed, we should behold his glory. As revealed in God's presence with him, God's pleasure in him, God's command about him, and God's grace through him. And we should live on his mission by proclaiming the cross. This is what we're about as the people of God, the cross of Christ. We make disciples by pointing to the cross in the empty tomb. Behold, follow. That's the sermon. I should have just said, behold Christ, follow Christ. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> That's the sermon. Behold Jesus and follow him. Behold his divine glory. Follow his gospel mission. Now, some of you may, as we wrap up, say, come on, man. This ain't fair. Like, they got to hear the audible voice of God. <laughs> like, Clint, you're just telling me it's real simple. Just behold Jesus and to follow him and be willing to suffer. But that's not fair. I haven't, I haven't got to hear God's voice. I haven't got to hear him speak like that. That's unfair. They have an advantage. Peter wants a word with you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter, who saw him, he was on the mountain. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he says this wasn't a myth. We didn't make this up. We saw it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says everything we saw and heard, more fully confirmed right here. You don't need to hear his voice. You have it. The Holy Spirit has inspired this word. And the Holy Spirit guides you into this word that you might know the voice and will of God. And so Peter's letting you, no, 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 I had both. I had both. I heard his voice, and I got the word, and I'm telling you, follow the word. It confirms everything we heard is everything the Old Testament was pointing to, everything the gospel reveals, everything the epistles, all of it's there in the scriptures. Go to the word. 
I wonder if you think about your Bible like that. That my God, the living God, wants to speak with me. And he's given me his word. Friends, you have the voice of God in the book you hold in your hands even now. Luther said, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. Peter says, everything you need is in his word. The Holy Spirit would guide you into his word. New believers, my application to you this morning, give yourself to meeting with God in his word for the rest of your life. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Literally, same word as transfiguration. So the way you're going to become more like the glorious Lord we've studied. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Again, 2 Corinthians 3, 16. When one turns to the Lord, new conversion, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. At the center of the Word of God is the cross of Christ. You know, just for fun, and to conclude this, do you know what Elijah and Moses were talking to Jesus about the mountain transfiguration? Luke tells us in his account, Luke 9, verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah caught up with Christ, Mount of Transfiguration. What's the topic of conversation? Gospel. They want to talk about the resurrected Lord. Jesus, you're going to go die? You're going to accomplish redemption? You're going to raise from the grave? That's the topic of conversation, brothers and sisters. Ought that be the uh, topic of conversation for us? We behold him, see his glory like no other. We live on his mission. And right at the middle of it all, the cross of Christ as we worship and, and grow in truth, even by the Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that he accomplished. We pray even now, help us behold him. I pray, take my feeble efforts. At